Welcome back. Okay, we gotta start, everybody turn on your camera. We gotta start with a big group hug, big little, little love fest thing. Because otherwise, you know, again, I'm just sitting in this cardboard box talking into this god awful screen. Oh, there you are. There are people out there. I was, it was so exciting. I was listening to the, the researchers from Oxford saying that it's the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Um, this vaccine is going to work. So it's going to take a while for us to get it, but. Um, hope at the end of this pretty dark tunnel. So anyway, welcome back. Welcome back from Thanksgiving. I for one gave, had great thanks that, that I had last week off. <laughs> so um, no, really big thanks to everybody. Welcome back. Those of you who may be new to this, we just show up. We started this 30 some weeks ago. Had no idea it would be going on this long. It's just a way to get together and talk about stuff. Um, and I, I usually just have a few introductory kind of advertisement sillinesses, a couple suggestions, you know, maybe some topics that come to mind. And then it's up to you, whatever you want to talk about. But I do want to say we've got, we've got a rich thing going on right now with this series of interviews. So um, on Nightclub, this is always the most exciting part for me. So <clears throat> we released a, this remarkable interview with Father Francis Tiso this week. He's, he, this is, a, you know, I grew up as a Catholic, right? Uh, he, this guy is definitely not like any Catholic priest I've ever met. Tremendous scholar um, and a real mystic, a real practitioner. I was blown away. I read his book twice, but, you know, spending time in this company was just really, really special. Tomorrow morning, I'm, I'm interviewing um, a neuroscientist. He's actually a friend, Antoine Lutz, who lives in France now. I, I met him um, several times when I was in Richie Davidson's big, famous lab in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's like a mecca for young scientists, a Center for the Investigation of Healthy Minds. Unbelievable place, oh my God. Um, and so I met Antoine there maybe seven years ago. Um, and since then we've done some programs together and whatnot. So he, he hardly ever, ever does interviews, but I was able to tag him. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about the neuroscience of meditation. He was really Richie's, you know, Richie Davidson is like the preeminent voice here, arguably. And so he was Richie's right, right hand guy for many, many years till he got this position in France. Um, so I'm, I'm quite excited. I'm going to actually propose to him. I have a couple ideas for science, uh, scientific studies, ways to study meditators. Um, so we'll see if that lands with him. Also next week, my dear friend Fariba Bagzaran, who I've been in conversation with for a long, long time. She finally um, has the time to join us. And she's a really cool gal. Um, PhD wrote this really lovely book called Integral Dreaming. So we're going to talk a lot about integral theory and how that relates to dreaming. And she's also currently doing an anthology on lucid dreaming. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that work. She's awesome. Really cool gal. Um, my buddy Yusuf, Yusuf Alhur, the Islamic scholar that I had on about maybe two months ago. He's coming back for round two. This time we're gonna talk about, specifically about the is, uh, mystical Islamic approach to dreams and sleep and stuff I had, like, I had no idea about until he reached out to me. So he's, this guy's awesome. And he's also, I'm gonna also invite him to share a little bit about this astounding good news. He, he went offline for like two months. I didn't hear a word from him. You know, He was like my new pen pal from Baghdad 
So we were exchanging emails all the time and he just went totally AWOL. And then finally he came back, he was just bursting with excitement. And this is actually pretty big news. He, he actually was in contact for several months with like, you know, the highest levels of the Pakistani government, um, prime ministers and minister of whatever, I don't know which department, but um, they're kind of putting him at the head of the kind of reinstatement of an ancient monastic um, kind of university similar to Nalanda um, called uh, uh, Taxila, which I actually visited. I was there, I visited it in Pakistan. Um, you know, destroyed, um, but now they want to rebuild it and, and create this kind of international venue for scholars and, and stuff. So he's just, uh, you know, off the charts, excited about this. And it's, this is cool news. Um, so I'm going to be pinging it out to all my contacts, to my magazine publishing friends and see if we can get some traction for him here. Um, really cool stuff. And then last but not least, I haven't set a date on this, but Ben has also agreed. He's another neuroscientist. I've worked with Ben personally with Stephen LaBerge, really smart guy, also at University of Wisconsin-Madison, working uh, mostly under Giulio Tononi's lab. Giulio Tononi is a major neuroscientist. Some of you may know his work if you're in this field at all, integrated information theory. He, he's a real smart cookie. Um, who does hardcore neuroscience um, on theories of perception and mind. But there's something, there's some cool whatever at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so now people are kind of dancing between Richie's lab and Julio's lab. Um, and so I've been in, in, I've had several long conversations with Ben Baird, <clears throat> um, who is one of the most active researchers in lucid dreaming now. I mean, he's putting out so many papers, it's crazy. So we were in conversation about actually designing study designs for proving lucid sleep. Um, so I'm gonna bring him on, he agreed to do it. Um, maybe this one in January, but anyway, all kinds of cool things happening. So excited to share that with you. I have thanks for that. So I did wanna say in terms of like what my little riff is today, um, I introduced this a little bit on, on our Tuesday night Dreams of Life book study group and it, it's such a, I think compelling, important little contemplation meditation that I want us to do it um, because it takes a while. It takes a while to wrap your mind around this puppy and to get the hang of it. Um, I've been working with it for, for at this point, maybe 14 months. And uh, the more I play with this, the more mind bending this one is. And it's, it's, it's challenging to say the least um, because it, it's just so, antithetical, so completely antithetical to the way we see the world. Um, it's a little bit what I write about in part three of my Dreams of Light book. <clears throat> and so this, basically this little contemplation we're gonna do is um, a way to start kicking down the door to put some dents in this view. You know, we, whether we know it or not, even if we don't have a view, that's still a view <laughs> of reality. You could, it's either nihilism or, I mean, there, there's no such thing as no view. Everybody has a view about the world, whether, whether they know it or not. If they can't put a label on, it doesn't matter. You still see the world based on some particular understanding of reality. And so <clears throat> there's so many ways to talk about the standard default view, <clears throat> the view of representationalism. And, and that's the, the word I use in my book 
where the idea here is that it's called representationalism because um, we have this unquestioned way of looking at the world <clears throat> that we feel in an unexamined way. And remember Plato, Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living, <clears throat> excuse me. So we have this unexamined view that there is something out there, duality, solid, lasting, independent, a world out there. <clears throat> I parachute into it when I'm born, I FedEx out of it or whatever when I die. It's also called, called a correspondence theory of truth. Um, and in more philosophical terms, it's sometimes referred to as realism. And there are a number of forms of this realism, naive realism, critical realism. Um, critical realism is what most of us subscribe to, which is more or less the view that, yeah, there is something out there, but it's not like 100% independent of me. You know, I, on some level, I know I color it a little bit. And so um, there's a particular kind of contemplation that comes about that I, I kind of put these together when I was really reflecting on this teaching from a, a, a neuroscientist, Daniel, uh, Donald Hoffman. You know, I think I mentioned his book. I, I gave a little endorsement for it last year. <laughs> I'm rereading it again. This is an amazing book. Do I have it down here? In my, you should see my room. If, if you saw my room, you would just be aghast. It's amazing. Oh, what I basically do is before I come on, I take this shovel and I just kind of clear the screen between me and this. Because otherwise, honestly, some days, if I, if I ever don't show up, it's because the books buried me. <laughs> I'm almost like not kidding. I, I'm too embarrassed to show you, but if I took my camera, I mean, I, there's like bookshelves everywhere and you know, I have to almost wear a helmet down here. It's actually kind of scary or snorkel. I need a snorkel. So anyway, I, I thought, <laughs> Uh, I guess I don't have it. Um, for the deeper divers out there, I highly recommend this book. It's, oh, oh my gosh, I do have it. Ha ha, see, I knew it once I shoveled enough. Here it is. The Case Against Reality, <clears throat> Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. This is, this is an amazing book. Um, not easy, it's for the, the eggheads out there. It's a pretty academic, scholarly, scientific book, but it is one clever book. So much to say about it. But when I was reading this stuff, this is actually after a conversation I had last year with Stephen LaBerge, where we were talking about this. This idea, does, does the moon exist when you're not looking at it? This is a classic age old philosophical question. Um, is the world, you know, does, using the moon, does the moon exist when you're not looking at it? And so saying that it does, saying that the, that the moon is there when you're not looking at it, that's called non-contextual realism, which means it's irrespective of a context. That baby is always there. And again, most of us adhere to this. That's another way. It, it's even, I'd say it's even more of a default view than critical realism is non-contextual realism. That, yeah, there, you know, I mean, there's the moon. And every time I look, it's there. And every time I, you know, I turn my mind and, and eyes and it, it's there. Well, ah, no, it's not, no, it's not. And the, and the thing about this that's so awesome is that this is, you know, I wouldn't say standard fare, but the deeper diving meditative spiritual teachings are exactly about this. And so when I read about this philosophy, yeah, a little bit, but I get bored with philosophy, honestly. 
Um, but when the scientists and neuroscientists and whatnot start pinging about this, the physicists, the quantum theorists, the cognitive scientists, the cognitive neuroscientists, I find this stuff super interesting. And so this is what we're gonna be doing with this little meditation. And if it takes, you have to do it over and over and over because you know repetition, I write about this in my first book, Power and Pain, whole chapter on repetition. Repetition has gotten us into this dualistic mess. Whether we know it or not, we are constantly practicing samsara. We're constantly practicing duality, whether we know it or not. That's our default mode practice. We don't even know it's a practice. In a certain, in a certain sense, we practice it so much. We're so good at it. It's a performance. We, we hardly even have to practice anymore. <laughs> We're performers. Um, but we have been trained to see the world this way, this dualistic way. This is not the way the world is. This is not reality. This is samsara. This is duality. It's not the way the world is. So when we talk about, when the scientists talk about non-contextual realism, they're talking about this axiomatic given view that we talk about in the spiritual business is duality. And so the, the world does not exist in this way. Contrary to our um, intuitions, it's completely counterintuitive. The moon is not there if you don't look at it. Um, and so it's like, oh, are you kidding me? Well, this is where you have to start to suss out. There's a lot to suss out here. And so I'm just going to start throwing some stuff out today. We'll do the practice. Maybe we'll talk more about it next week. And then again, maybe I'll read some of these unbelievable supporting statements from what's called cubism, which is a, a really wild form of quantum theory that supports this. Uh, there's a whole lot of really clever people that talk about this sort of thing. And it's really helpful to read five, 10, 15, 20, 100 different statements from all these disciplines, basically reinstating the same view because it's so against the way we see things. We need to hear it over and over, the repetition thing, over and over and over again. So one thing we have to state at the outset is that this is where you have to make the distinction between phenomenal and relational reality. So um, in Buddhist terms, for those of you who know this, this is the difference between what's called paratantra and parikalpata in the, the yoga child tradition, basically saying the same thing, just, just different words. But philosophers talk about the difference between relational and phenomenal reality. Phenomenal reality is what you perceive. It's what you bring to what is out there. Your history, your projections, your hopes, your fears, your hardware, your software. It is unbelievable how much we bring to this world um, and therefore dramatically shape it, color it in our image completely unbeknownst to us. This is what it means to be asleep spiritually. That's phenomenal reality. Our version, our take, which is usually just a colossal mistake, <laughs> on the phenomenal world. So then this is where it gets really interesting. And I'm not gonna to go too far into this because otherwise we'd be here for a week. Then you have what's called, what philosophers call is relational reality, paratantra. There is something, quote unquote, and, and this is like, this is the hornet's nest. What is that thing? What, what is it that's out there? Is it even out there? Um, John Wheeler, again, physicist, student of Einstein. I love this quote. He's, he's big in this stuff, or at least he was, he's, he died. 
he famously says, you know, there is no out there out there. This is from a hardcore quantum physicist. This is not a mystic. So this idea of what, what relational reality is, that's beyond our scope for today. Um, but it's a tremendously interesting topic. So here's the practice. Here's what we're going to do. And it's a fake it till you make it practice. And we're going to be faking it. It's actually a type of impure loose reform practice, actually. Um, and it, it's a contemplation meditation that I conjoined a little bit with my dreams, with dream work. And, you know, the contemplation is the following. And, and it's, it's just like such a mind F, pardon my whatever, my French. You can't even say that. I actually said that once. And then somebody sent me a letter saying, you can't even say pardon my French anymore. It's like, it, you know, I, you have to be so PC these days. It's like, <laughs> I need like some, I need to like some running editor, you know, like, no, you can't say that. No, you have to use that pronoun. No, you can't do that. You can't go there. I mean, like, give me a break. Please give me a break. Stop sending me all this feedback. <laughs> some of it's most welcome, honestly, really. I try not to cross the lines. My humor is a little edgy. If I do say something that's off, call me on it. But anyway, I think you get, you get that little rant. So what you wanna do here is, is contemplate this staggering truth <clears throat> that is so like, are you kidding me? That um, um, we're gonna do this by closing our eyes. <clears throat> and so I did this on the Tuesday group. And so your eyes are closed, right? Everybody close your eyes. And so you're, you're sitting here with your eyes closed and gosh, golly gee, you just 10 seconds ago, there was this goofball on the screen and then the screen itself and then the room, it, it's there, right? Wrong, <laughs> dead wrong. <clears throat> what did Mark Twain say? Um, again, this is another one misattributed. Um, I heard another attribution to this one, um, not Mark Twain, but Josh Billings, humorist, 18th century. It's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. Thinking that there's screen, that screen is there that you just saw you know, for, uh, a minute ago, that room that you just saw a minute ago, thinking that it's there waiting for you, it's just ain't so. You just think it's there. Independent of you, waiting for you, you open your eyes, it's going to be there. Wrong. Wrong. At the speed of sight, and that's a little exercise, at the speed of sight, the minute you open your eyes, you bring forth the room. You bring forth your perception of the room, the screen, everything you see, is co-constructed with lightning fast rapidity. In fact, that's part of the kicker. It happens so fast, so constantly, so unconsciously that we take that as a given. That it's not a construct, it's just the way it is. It, it's not the way it is. It's just not. Um, and so what we're gonna do is, you know, in five, 10 seconds, we're all gonna open our eyes and at the speed of sight, you're going to create, you're gonna co-create this room, the screen, everything you perceive in the actual instant that you perceive it. So open your eyes, bang. World, it's been here all along. No, it hasn't, no, no. Something has been there and that's the huge question, but it's not what you think. 
Um, and so <clears throat> literally at the speed of sight, you bring forth this reality. And so here's the one that, that's even more compelling to me. And I'm working with this one all the time now. This is the one I came up with in my dream yoga practice. When you're in a dream, and again, this is a, this is a type of dream. When you're in a dream, you assume you have a dream body. You assume you have dream eyes. You assume that there's a dream landscape in there. And really for most people, before they examine it, they almost feel that there's a pre-existing dreamscape that they just kind of enter. No, there isn't, it's just your mind. And so in a dream, like, and this is where Carlos Castaneda thing, he never said this. So he was off on this one. You know, the famous art of the dreaming, the art of the dream, art of dreaming. You know, if you want a, a kind of state check for lucidity is look at your hand in a dream. Well, he didn't say in that book is, there's no hand for you to look at. The actual looking creates the hand. There's no hand in there. Just like there's no eyes in there. If there is, point it out, find it. It's not there. The minute you look for the hand and bring it to your face, you're not, you're not bringing a dream hand up there. There isn't one. You're creating it. And even the so-called eyes that see that dream hand, you're creating that. None of that is true. So even in addition to that, what I started doing with my dreams that I now do here is that, you know, you're in a dreamscape and you probably never thought of this. This is where dream yoga is so cool. You just assume axiomatically, oh, there's a dream environment. I turn my head in the dream. Oh, there's a dreamscape. It's been there. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. It's not there. The minute you turn, you're not turning into a pre-existing dream. You're creating that environment the minute you look. It's not there. That's a little bit, even though that may be tricky, that's relatively easy to this. And that this is like, I'm looking, you know, you guys are seeing something behind me that I'm not seeing right now. You're seeing my bookshelf and all my silliness is back there. That doesn't exist for me yet. However, when I do this, oh, there it is. Ah, it's been there all along because it's the same thing that was there before. It's not, it's not. The minute I turn around, I enact that. It's not there. And so in the same way, and this is, such, it's, it is such a profound contemplation. When you leave the room that you're in, that room doesn't exist for you yet. You're gonna step into that room and you're just gonna, without even thinking, oh, the same old room, the same old objects. No, no, no. That sense of sameness is just born from habituation. And, and lest you think that there's someone else seeing the same thing that can confirm it to you, not, not. That's just kind of consensual reality. So this is the mind bender, just like in a dream. When you walk around, you think you're seeing this pre-existing world and you have some relative, not absolute, relative verification because, oh, that's there, it was there yesterday the same thing. It is not. And so it's such a profound contemplation. I've been, I've been doing this big time for the last year that when I leave this and I go, and I go out into my study, into my library, that, that library doesn't exist for me. I walk up the steps, those stairs aren't there yet. I walk upstairs and do whatever I'm going to do. It's not there yet. I enact it. I bring it forth. Unless you think, oh yeah, that's just your vision doing that. No all your senses. Vision is just the most interesting. Um, all your senses, you know, oh, I'm touching, I'm gonna touch, I'm gonna reach out and touch my body. I'm gonna reach out and touch whatever. 
it's there independent of me. No. <clears throat> every one of your senses, everyone, all five, is not representational. Everyone is co-creative. Even the sense of touch, you actually bring forth that world at the moment of contact. So isn't this stuff just so bloody cool? I just love it. It just completely blows my mind. And especially really, and maybe I'll share, oh, I got so excited, I talked way over. Um, when I start pinging some of these supporting quotes from the neuroscientists, the physicists, from all these, you know, again, because, oh, lo and behold, let us bow at the feet of the arbiters of truth. <laughs> hey, don't get me wrong, I love science, really. If I had to do it all over again, I would totally be a neuroscientist, really, I would. But, you know, we don't need to capitulate to the high priests of science. But on this level, there's a tremendous resonance. And these people who investigate this stuff from a completely non-spiritual point of view, they're saying the same bloody thing. And, and to me, I have to say, again, even though I kind of deride this kind of scientific scientism, the science behind this stuff is what's really changed this for me. I've been doing these contemplations <clears throat> for literally for 30 years, these investigations, and yeah, they're super helpful. But to me, with my Western dispositions and whatnot, it's when I read the science and all, not just one science, but all these different disciplines hanging on the same staggering truth, it, it starts to really work on me. It starts to really shape shift the way I think. And anyway, I throw that out as a contemplation. I find it actually beyond profound, but because for many of you, it may be just like radical. And so like, you gotta be kidding me type of thing. You got to work with it. You got to play with it. Fake it, fake it, fake it, fake it, fake it. And eventually you'll start to make it or, or in a certain sense, not make it. You'll actually start to see that, oh my gee, uh, you know, even though there isn't one, OMG, there is no pre-existing world here. I bring it forth. I am responsible for the world that I create. So anyway, I love this kind of thing. Longer riff than normal, but it's because I wasn't with you last week. I had all this pent up energy. <laughs> so I'm just sharing the love. Okay, whatever you guys wanna talk about now is open territory, so fire away. Oh, there was one question that came in, so I'll get that. And then we open it up to you guys. And I love to talk about this practice with you. Um, this is connected, some of you who know the lingo, the Buddhist lingo, this is connected to the, what are called the Mahamudra investigations. That's where I started doing this stuff 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And in particular, the investigations of what are called pointing out appearance, um, pointing out mind as appearance. So for those who are deep divers who have a connection to that, that's the Buddhist analog. Okay, submitted in advance, Joni. What is the best thing you can say or do for someone in the bardo to make them aware that they are dead? Yeah, interesting question, Joni. Um, tell them, really tell them. It, it's gonna, you know, whether that has any impact and I'll share a story around this with you, whether that has any impact or not, I have no idea. But if you have a karmic connection with a loved one, um, chances are very good, especially the stronger the connection, the more this works. After they die, they will come to you. After they die, they will be drawn to you. Those of you 
who have had this experience, I, this happens to me quite frequently. When a loved one dies, um, I, I feel their presence. I have dreams about them. Sometimes I literally feel them in my mind space when I'm practicing. And so what I started to do, Joni, and see if this works with you, I started doing this whew, man, decades ago um, where I started inviting people that I was close to, kind of like my Tonglin practice it was connected to that. I started inviting mind streams, uh, Chitta Santana, it's called the Manomaya, the Bardova, the, the after death space um, being entity, whatever you want to call them. I would invite them into my mind space when I was practicing. Literally, after I settled my mind, I'd visualize them, I'd open my heart, I'd be really, really quiet. And then I'd start calling out to them. And because I've been doing this for so long and there is some openness that happens over decades of practice, you, you start to feel, oh, there they are, there they are. You know, so they come into your space, you can feel them. Women in particular, it's interesting how, how generally women are more psychically oriented, more sensitive. My theory here is it's because they're more connected to their bodies through their cycles, through their natural kind of um, biological rhythms and, and that sort of thing. Gross generalization, correct me if this is it, um, politically incorrect to say, um, but I'd be very interested. There probably has been some studies. Women tend to be generally more intuitive because they're more in tune with, intuitive, intuitive, in tune with their bodies. Um, and so I would invite them into my mind space and, and then often I'd, I'd feel it. You know, I, I, I open it up, it's like click. Oh, there they are. There they are. And then I guide them. I, I, like, I'll give you one classic example, um, and then I'll share a really cool story about this. Oh, what the heck? Hold on. That's a dream sign right there. That, that's, a call, that's, that's a call from someone who just, it's coming back. It's a call from someone who just died, see? I, I can tell they're coming in. <laughs> All right, good Lord. All right, close this out. Um, uh, where was I here before I was so rudely interrupted by that dead person? Um, so yeah, so I, I open my heart, I open my mind, I do my practice, I invite them into my space. Often I, I, I feel it. And then literally I guide them. I mean, no kidding. It's just kind of street level, like when my mom died, this is, and I'm saying this because this, there's a really cool story around this. Um, I would invite her into the space and, and I would say, mom, 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 you know, um, I need to tell you that, you know, you're dead. You, you've transitioned. Everything's totally cool. We're all good. Don't worry about us. We're cool. Now the time to take care of yourself. But you need to know sometimes it's hard, mom, to understand that, you know, it's like sometimes when you're in a dream, you don't know you're dreaming. Sometimes you're dead, you don't know that you're dead. So I'm here to tell you that you're dead and it's okay. It's totally fine. Everybody transitions. And so then I do that. I kind of do that thing. And then I give her some instructions. I'm not going to go there. That's just beyond the scope of this question. Um, and so if you have that kind of connection karmically, I would recommend you do that. And you'll start to feel this stuff. And so here's where the story gets really cool. 
this was a big deal event for me. So after I was super close to my mom, I mean, super close, really close. And so I practiced for her every morning after she died. I was doing this. I had this little thing I do. And I, I felt her every morning, every morning, every morning. And, and then about five days after she died, I, I had sent a request um, to one of my main teachers. His name is Trungo Rinpoche, a meditation master. And I had set it up in advance. I sent him some money, um, a donation. Um, and, I, and I had it all set up in advance because I know him really well and I know his secretaries and all that. And, and I wrote to him and I said, Rinpoche to his secretary, can you do POA for my mom, ejection of consciousness? I didn't hear anything back, um, which is not uncommon. And, you know, I think three days after, four days after I sent that request, I was doing my morning thing with my mom and I couldn't find her. He's like, I was doing the same thing I've been doing for four or five days and I couldn't find her. It's like, whoa, I, I, can't, I can't find her anymore. I was like, that's interesting. I came up from that practice and then my niece, completely independently of me, pretty sensitive lady, said, you know, it's really weird. I don't, my mom's name was Maria. She goes, I don't feel Maria around today. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. And so that was the day of her ceremony. And later that day, I got the message from uh, Rinpoche's secretary that Trang Rinpoche had done POA for my mom that morning. He, it's called Iron Hook of Compassion. He has that power. These meditation masters have that power. He hooked her consciousness, so to speak, and then transferred it. And I tell you, you know, it's like you have to be there to believe it. But for me, it was just like, no doubt, no doubt. So anyway, that's my little riff on that. It was one of the really hair-raising experiences of my life. Not in a weird, chilling way, but in like, oh my gosh, this POA thing works. So that's my riff on that. Okay, live chat questions, and then we'll open it up. Do we co-create the other people too? No, Lindsay, not quite. Again, they are out there, so to speak. This is, this is where language fails miserably um, because we're talking about non-duality using dualistic mediums, i.e. language, and it just doesn't work. So um, we don't create other people. That, that's the error, Lindsay, that you know, it's philosophical error, it's called solipsism, ultimate, literally, etymologically, ultimate self-ism. Um, new age people might think that that's a colossal error of the secret. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, that is just so naive. Ah, we don't ha nobody has that power. We're, you know, the only time we even remotely come close to that power of omniscience, uh, I shouldn't say omniscience. Um, yeah, you could say omnipotence is in the, you know, in the dream state. But even there, we're not ultimately solipsistic. Mostly our dreams, but not entirely so. So we don't create other people, but what we do is we color them dramatically. <laughs> have, have you noticed this, Lindsay? You know, the politicians, we completely project them, plaster them with our projections. And, and so we don't co-create them um, in that relational sense. We don't have that power, no one does we co-create our phenomenal experience of them. However, with that said, and again, this is where the stuff just gets so profound. We do, however, in conjunction with those people, 
co-create this collective world space. Yes, that we do. The Kala Chakra Tantra talks about this with tremendous force. We co-create animals, all other forms, co-create this spectrum, but we don't create other people, we color them. And so what I do here as a practice, Lindsay, is I think I might've mentioned this before. You know, I'm a liberal uh, uh, Democrat. I, I watch MSNBC, I watch Rachel sometimes, Rachel Maddow. The thing I mentioned this before, as a practice, I'll sometimes watch um, Fox. I'll watch um, people that really get my goat. You know, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, all these like, what planet are these people living on? But I won't go there. That's PC, so you can call me on that one. PC incorrect. I will watch them. I get find myself getting all caught up in their whatevers. And then like I mentioned before, I'll hit the mute button. I'll reach over and mute them. And the minute I, I stop that sensory input ceases, my levels of projection upon them drop dramatically. And then I can look at them a little bit more clearly and see, you know, maybe look at the pain in this person, look at the anxiety in this person's face, look at the heartache behind that facade. And therefore it, it helps me connect to them as human beings and the commonality of the human condition brings about tolerance, openness, and it also then shows me how instantly I project onto others and transfer and counter-transfer and all this really incredibly interesting shadow work that we do. I am so big into this type of stuff, shadow work, shadow hugging, shadow boxing, all the ways that we throw um, our stuff onto other people. So good question, Lindsay, I hope that helps. So a couple more, then we can open it up. Um, so Tim, so who creates this and why? We do not do it consciously. No, we don't. We do it non-lucidly. That's what it means to be asleep. So what we want to do is bring these unconscious machinations into the light of consciousness, into the light of lucidity or awareness. Why? So that we can be free of it. Take ownership of it. That's what shadow work is all about. Shadow work is about ownership take responsibility, um, see that we are in fact magnificent co-creators. So we definitely don't do it consciously until you're a Buddha. When you're a Buddha, all habits are removed, all these projections are removed. Projection is replaced by radiance, by light. Then you see, that's, when, that's really when you see clearly. And this is where, I mean, ha, philosophically this business started or was most beautifully articulated with Immanuel Kant, right? Noumena phenomena, for those of you who are philosophers. This is where the Buddhists don't agree with that massive intellectual giant. Uh, I visited his birthplace in, in uh, Russia, by the way, Kaliningrad, amazing place. Um, you know, where Kant basically said, you can't, the, the, you know, the thing as it is, you can't ever know the thing as it is. Not true. Well, let me take that back. On one level, yes, it's true because you can't know it in a conceptual referential way, true. But you can go one step beyond that. You can be it, you can become it. Um, and so that's where Kant is, is a little bit limited. That's the massive limitation between philosophy and spirituality where you don't have a praxis, you don't have a method of transformation. Um, and so that's where, that's where philosophy fundamentally, if there's no praxis, no practical um, uh, transformational methodology, I'm not interested. I mean, what do I care about somebody spewing their views, right? Give me a break. So who creates this and why? Oh, Lordy, Tim. Um, depends, you know, this is a massively uh, subtle question. 
both the who and the why, right? <laughs> oh, Lord, this is what happens when, all right, this is my, my fault. I bring a heavy topic in and I get these really heavy questions, which I love. So who creates this and why? Well, you, you can answer this on several levels. From a le And again, I just have to ping out some of the doctrine here because I don't have time to unpack it all. On a relative level, this is created by the eighth consciousness, substrate mind. This is exactly what we're exploring in this book. Oh, lo and behold, I just happen to have a copy right here. What a surprise. <laughs> so this is the book group that we're doing on Tuesdays. Come join us. You can still join. We, we barely started section two. We're gonna be we're gonna be doing this thing until I'm dead, I'll tell you. It's gonna take eight months to finish this. Section three is all about this. <clears throat> and section two, that actually right, we're in, we're in it right now. We're talking about this stuff. So come join us on Tuesday. Substrate consciousness, eighth consciousness creates it from a relative perspective. What generates it? It's not a who. What generate? There's no who anywhere here. So if you're actually to ask this question, Tim, this is not being smart alecky. If you're actually to ask this question of the Buddha, he would probably say something like this. I loved, I love this kind of correction because I have been corrected this way, by the way, when I've asked these sorts of questions of my teachers. The Buddha would probably say something like, Tim, the question is wrongly asked. You're asking the wrong question. Even the way you ask the question sends your mind in a particular reified direction. In other words, who? There is no who. So even using that word always sets your mind in a, in a noun-based, product-based, thing-based, reified-based approach. There is no who. So who creates it, quote unquote, there is no who, relatively, what are the causes and conditions that create the illusion of this appearance? Relative terms, eighth consciousness, substrate mind. Absolute terms, clear light mind, Buddha nature. Why? Oh, geez. Uh, on one level, on a relative level, because we don't know any better. <laughs> Let's raise a toast to that. Because we're ignorant, marigpa. Why do we do it on a relative level? Because we just don't know any better. We don't know there's another way. We don't even know that we're doing this. So we do it out of ignorance in the confused realm. On an absolute realm, why do we do it? This is even better for the heck of it. Lila, ropa, play, no purpose, just shine. So the, even then the question falls apart. Um, so good question, my friend, and that's the best I can do with that for now, unless you want to spend the whole session on it. Stan, what are the actual steps to the practice you just described? I don't know, Stan. I'm just making this up on the fly, amigo. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I have not turned this into a practice before. I am not kidding. I started doing this on um, Tuesday with our Dreams of Light study group, and then I figured the stuff is so cool that I wanted to share it with you. Um, so maybe I should turn this into a step-by-step -step practice. So, you know, here's what you can do, amigo. Stay tuned. You write all this crap down, and then you create some steps for me, right? I haven't done this before. So there are no steps outside of what I just told you. Oh, look at all these questions coming in. Ah, it's great. I love it. Okay, Marianne, what are your thoughts about dementia? Uh, yeah, my mom died of Alzheimer's, so I know a little bit about this baby. This is a tough one, man. 
This, dementia is wicked. Um, I grieve for my father who has a kind of dementia after brain cancer. Yeah, my heart's with you. My mom, the same. It's so painful, so painful. I wonder in which kind of bardo he might be. He is clearly not there all the time, but also not gone. Oy. Oh, sweetheart. Um, this is a really difficult one. I mean, I don't know what kind of bardo he's in. Um, a little bit will depend on the individual's level of identification with dimensions of being. So by that, what I mean is if you are, and most people, unfortunately, um, and I would say, well, yeah, no, I don't need to go into all the qualifiers. Most people are pretty much exclusively identified with body, brain, gross levels of consciousness. The untamed, untrained mind, that's just no criticism. That's just where they float. And for those kind of individuals, this can be a very confusing space because there's no nuance or subtlety in terms of dimensions of being that are no longer um, subject to the machinations of the physical strata that bring about this particular case because dementia does not exist in the subtle body. Dementia definitely doesn't exist in the indestructible, very subtle body. So it's purely a byproduct of the brain <clears throat> and its machinations. So the reason I mentioned this is that if you start to differentiate from exclusive identification with outer form, brain, gross levels of mind, well, guess what happens? You actually subsend this type of experience. You're below it. For someone like that, then this, these types of experiences fundamentally don't have much traffic. Um, on another level, just to show you like, oh, this is just like metaphysical mumbo jumbo. No, it's not. Um, Famous classic story, archetypal, apocryphal, I don't know. You know, Ram Dass gave his guru 25 hits of orange sunshine, LSD, nothing changed, you know? So that level of, of, of um, pharmacological input had no effect on this guy's awareness. So I don't know what kind of bardo he's in. I don't know if anybody can answer that, even the, even the neuroscientists. Phenomenologically, only you know, an incredibly sensitive Buddha mind would somehow be able to tell you like where they are. What are my thoughts on dementia? You know, again, this is a massive topic outside of what I just said. I'm not sure what else I have to say. Um, it's it's a, a one obviously one of the great tragedies. I wouldn't say tragedy. It's not a tragedy. One of the great um, challenges of this age, um, a massive tax on every system that we have. And again, I have a lot of really personal experience with this because my mom passed from Alzheimer's. But maybe for the purposes of time, Marianne, um, I'll let that one ride for now. Aline, what if they have gone on to another incarnation? What are you inviting back? Well, at that point, you're not, Eileen. So they're, they're already, um, if they've already gone on, and they're no longer in the Bardo becoming, then what you're saying is right. You, you really don't have, uh, you can't reach them in this way. But it doesn't mean you can't reach them. You can still help them through the dedication of merit. Um, and this is actually quite important because, you know, the reason these proclamations can seem just so radical and outrageous is, it, you know, most of us are still heavily ensconced in materialistic worldview dictated by the high priest of truth, scientists. We live in a world of matter. No, we don't. No, no, we don't. We live in a world of heart, mind, spirit, a particular bandwidth of which we experience as the world of matter. There is no matter out there. 
It's just a particular way of relating to the radiance of the shine of the clear light mind. Really, no kidding. And so when you understand that, and it's a complete revolution in knowledge and perception, then you're no longer limited by the vicissitudes of space and time. And so someone in this case could be born into another body already. You may not be able to reach them in the way I was saying before. Yes, that's true. But you can still connect to them. You know, what, what's the maximum? Death is the end of a body. It's not the end of a relationship. And so you can send merit. You can, you can do all these magical things. Um, using, you know, the kind of the bandwidth of the ultimate connectivity of mind and heart. It is not limited to space, time, or matter. Barbara, can Poe would be done after the last breath? Yes, it can, but only with prep, Barbara. Um, Poe is uh, ejection of consciousness. There's many different kinds. <clears throat> you can do Poe after the last, last breath is taken. Generally, the recommendation is to try to do it at the onset of the stages of the um, uh, later stages of the outer dissolution in the death process. And then it's done purely through intentionality. So this is the way POA works. You practice it during lifetime in order to get the channels cleared out, to get everything going, you have the signs. And then because you've done the prep work, and I've asked teachers about this because I said, I asked them, well, you don't have breathing because it usually when you're practicing it, you're using the medium of the breath. And I asked them, well, what do you do when you're not breathing barely when you're dying? What do you do? How does it work then? And they, they told me, they said, you, did, you do it through the power of intention at that point. So you've done the work. Then at that moment, you, you, you FedEx, you eject using intention alone. If you haven't done this practice in advance, that doesn't work. Um, so yes, POA can be done after the last breath, but only if you've done the practice. Tanya, during lucid dreamless sleep, is it possible to initiate a dream at will? Oh, what a great question. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Um, because at that point you're resting in the formless dimensions of mind. It's a little bit, I mean, here's a, here's a, a daytime analog of this, Tanya, is, you know, you can close your eyes and let's do that for a second. You can close your eyes and we may not be able to do it just because I'm pretty speedy, windy, and we're all kind of collectively windy. But if we unwind a little bit, unwind, You can, and again, maybe a bit unlikely to do it on the spot, but when the winds settle enough, you can rest even now in this dreamless, formless state. Now, you can do it right now. And then from that state, just like what we're talking about with your question, you can initiate a voluntary thought. You can initiate a voluntary dream so-called daydream, voluntary image or whatever. And so in exactly the same way, if you're hanging out in lucid dreamless sleep and you initiate a dream, guess what that dream is? Depending on the level of your familiarity with the clear light mind in the deep dreamless state, the dream will be one of two types. It will be absolutely lucid. The dream will be instantly lucid. And if you're really doing this right, this is a little bit more graduate school, the dream becomes what's called a dream of clear light, where the dream is not just a lucid dream, where you're aware that you're dreaming. There's another step beyond that, 
which is where the dream that arises is reflexively aware. Um, and I'm gonna leave that as a koan for you. The dream is a very beautiful, rare um, kind of, I wouldn't say elite, because that gives it this, like, I can't ever do that. A little bit more advanced type of dream um, where you're, you're actually at that type of dream, you're not even witnessing the dream. You are not having the dream. The dream has itself. So for sure, you can definitely do that. It's really cool. Uh, what about animals? I had a close uh, relationship with my dog. 14 years, she came back to me after she died. My bed shakes, I confess. Yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. Same. Same with the animals, Elaine. Absolutely the same. I do the same thing. Everything I do for a human being, I do for animals. I do for my pets, including, I have to say, when I, when I put my pet down, and by the way, parenthetically, I asked my teachers, is that a cool thing to do? And, and every teacher that I have asked said, if your intention is pure, it's, good, it's okay to do that because animals don't learn through their suffering. And so um, I put my pet down and as I was putting my pet down, my cat, um, I held her as they injected her. And what I was doing, I was on the top of her head, I was flicking my finger into the top of her head at her Brahmarandra. This is connected to the poetic. This stuff is wildly esoteric, but you know, it works. I was doing that as a way to, it's, it's a, a minor form of ejection of consciousness, POA for others, where I was inviting her consciousness to the top of her head so that when she left, consciousness will leave through one of nine portals when we die. Each one is not a cause, but a, a primary contributing condition to where they go after death. You want them to go through the Brahmarandra. And so when, I, when my pet was going down, I did that. Parenthetically, when you're at the side of someone who is physically dying, I did this with my mom. I wasn't there at the moment she died, but when I was with her, you don't stand at their feet, sit behind them. I was constantly kind of caressing the top of her head and gently topping her, tapping the top of her head as a way to bring her awareness up. So uh, when, they, when the animal goes through the bardos, they're no longer, that, that, that cat suit is gone. That dog suit is gone. They're naked. It's a naked mind. It's no longer a cat. It's no longer a dog. It's mind. And so depending on where you get them in that journey, First part, depending on all kinds of things that only a Buddha can answer, they're probably still in their cat suit or dog suit just because of the power of their habits. You can still bring them into your space, do exactly what, what I did, recommended before. <clears throat> and then after that, what will happen is that, that even that suit will be stripped away, so to speak. And then at that point, their awareness is equivalent <clears throat> to any other sentient beings. It's ultimate democracy. It's like, I love it. It's like the flat land of an EKG, right? <clears throat> During life, we're all over the place with the EKG. No, EEG. No, no, EKG, right, echocardiogram, electrocardiogram. When you die, flatland, flatline, we all return to the same ultimate democracy of mind. Your mind is no different from your animals at that point. In fact, you could switch roles. Your pet could come back as a human, you can come back as an animal. I mean, like, no kidding. And so I love this because it talks about, this is a really wonderful way of you know, to practice elevation as a sacred world, that the sentient being, this is why we should be vegetarians. Ah, politically incorrect, but I'm saying it because you know, we share this commonality. We share this commonality.
Oh, do we have a couple live ones? Um, I'm getting tired of just hearing myself. I, yeah, I can come back to these. There's a couple more, but I just want to open it up. And then there's a couple more here. I will get to them. All right, we'll okay. start. We'll start with uh, Beatrice. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Uh, How are I you? Great, great. I want to thank you especially for the interview with Yosef Alhur, the Islamic scholar. He's so I cool. I enjoyed isn't he? it very much. And uh, you pointed out that many of us are pretty ignorant about Islam. And um, it's too. wonderful that you're trying to fill the gap. And uh, he, I know he rattled off a whole bunch of resources. And like I looked up that one author, Henry Henri Corbin, and he's got thousands of pages of about Islam and but I'm hoping that you have some brain power and some spare time to read up on some of that stuff and I'm looking forward to the to the next interview because I'm hoping we can make a dent in Islamophobia and open up some new territory of interfaith dialogue no kidding huh? yeah yeah well you know the I couldn't agree more with you and I, I find him just so delightful what a beautiful human being um, you know, whether I'll have the bandwidth to, to dive into that. I mean, yes, I hope so. Maybe at some point I, I'd love to learn about the kind of the, I mean, really the exoteric and esoteric aspects of every tradition. Um, so someday I will get around to it in this life or the next, but uh, obviously it's just a matter of prioritizing time. I do homework before I interview my guests. So I always do a little bit around that, but I, essentially I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's, it's fantastic that we can actually do that. So thanks for that contribution comment. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cool. Welcome. Thanks, Beatrice. Okay, next let's bring in Alex. Hi, Andrew. Alex uh, from Ready? Mexico City here. Back again. Hey, How are you today? Como estas? Bien, gracias. Y tú? Yeah, you too. Muy bien. That was my first language, by the way. I, I learned uh, Lithuanian, Espanol, and then English. Wow. So, nice. Yeah. nice. I, I, was born, I was born in Bogota. Can't you tell? Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually a drug lord. This are is a whole you know, Are you Colombian? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. My parents were refugees from World War II. They, went, they wanted to go to Bolivia. My, my mom from uh, Stalin occupied Russia. I mean, uh, Lithuania. My father from German occupied and then Russian occupied Czechoslovakia. They they met in Ulm, the birthplace of Einstein. They were they were married within three months. They wanted to go to Bolivia. Revolution broke out in Bolivia. We've seen this movie. We don't want to go there. So they went to Colombia. They were there seven years. I was born there. Um, I don't remember it. Um, it's just long enough to have dual citizenship. But yeah, that's 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 my camping ground. I was born there. Wow. I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm impressed. So, Andrew, I'm trying to put together, this is a question I've been working in my, while I've been away for a couple of weeks. And first of all, I want to tell you that I got your book. Oh, you know. thank you, my friend. I'm, you. I, I'm on the first pages. I'm looking forward to this Tuesday's uh, studying group. Uh, cool. So, so very... Quickly, what, what, what time is that the study group on Tuesdays? Uh, Andy, Andy can put the information in the chat room. He's really good about that. Oh, it's, awesome, it's, okay. Uh, seven so, o'clock uh, my time. 
seven o'clock your time. Yeah, okay. Colorado time. Yeah. Colorado. But we time. record them, so if you miss one, you can you can still listen to them later and send in questions. But anyway, seven o'clock. Yep. Awesome. All right. So I'm going here with my my, my like uh, complex question, and I'll try to put it together as best as I can. Yeah. Okay. So. And you, I have a, a, I have spoken about this before, uh, but you weren't here. But I have a history of addiction. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I, I am addicted to cannabis. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and it's been like uh, many many years, uh, and uh, now I'm clean. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. almost on my ten month clean. Yeah. And I've been doing research. You know, meditation has helped me a lot, and. And so I, I, I have researched that, that what I'm after always is dopamine, my, my dopamine. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, the feel good. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, peaks, my dopamine uh, kicks, if you may. Yep. So, you know, in my first months, I, 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 I got this, I, I have had uh, aquariums before, yeah? So all of a sudden, I wanted to have an aquarium again, you know? So I went and I bought a little aquarium and all the gear and, you know, and then I got fishes, you know? And then I thought, ah, you know, I, I, you, the best food you can feed to fishes is a live food, yeah? You know, and, and then, this is not such a Buddhist thing to do or to say, but it's sure. Just, no, I, understand. I need to be yeah. honest about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, sure. In the past and now, I I do have I, I do have and I have recently discovered that I do get a dopamine kick out of seeing fish hunt fish. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I th and then I thought, well. This is not such a Buddhist thing to do, you know? But then I thought, isn't this the same of like when somebody has a pet spider and they feed them live crickets? Right. Sure. And it's not the same when somebody, you know, and, and, and you, can, you can scale it up, you know? Right. Uh, you know, if somebody has a snake and they feed them a live uh, mice sure. yeah. and then, yeah. It goes up and, and you can end up thinking about, this is very dark what I'm going to say, but uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm displaying my case here. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, you have a serial killer, let's say, and he has an alive person uh, caged somewhere in, the, in their house, you know, which it happens, yeah. And it's very sick, you know, and very dark. Are they getting a dopamine kick out of this? Probably, probably. So what's the deal? What's the deal? Like this is, I mean, should I be throwing my aquarium away and stop no, this no. thing? No, no. I, that like, because I, I think, because I've seen it, you know, you, you, you put their little fish for the big fish to hunt down and you know the little guy is scared to that. There. Right, I've been thinking right. about it and I've been thinking, would you like to be there? And and you certainly wouldn't like to be there, you know? Right. But you're putting that entity through that. Right. You know, and well, first, yeah. Well, first thing, the fact that you're even asking that question is really sensitive. So thank you for doing that. You know, this is a 
kind of a little bit of an interesting set of topics. Um, and, and I can only just give you like my little riff on it. I, I'm not going to be here like some preacher telling you what you should or shouldn't do. You know, um, I think fundamentally what perhaps we could be invited to do is exactly what you're doing, which is exploring the implications of, of this sort of thing, um, how it means to you, and then how you act from a well-informed space. Um, I think you have to make those decisions for yourself, guided perhaps by some of these principles. But let me just say that you hit on a, on a number of different things. You know, this whole idea of, of life, um, Joseph Campbell once said it really directly. I thought he just, he nailed it when he said, you know, life lives on life. And vegetarianism is the Karmapa espouses it, but there are some people, including the Dalai Lama, who cannot be a vegetarian. His, his, his system does not tolerate it. He has to eat meat because he was brought up in a culture where there was no vegetarianism, that you can't grow anything in Tibet. It's so cold, it's so high. You know, you have to live on animal products. And so what we do then is, is we maintain a relationship. You know, let's learn from the Native American peoples and the Indians who, when they hunt, wildlife, they do so, but with a treasured attitude towards the sanctity of life. They give thanks to the animal that they kill. They relate to it properly. So somewhere in here, my friend, we have to find our middle way. Um, I'm not necessarily espousing a type of puritanical approach to this. I'm not going to be telling people to do one thing any way or the other. I, I'm just going to share my experiences, share the traditional teachings. And then fundamentally, let you decide for yourself. That's what's most important. I, I'm always a slightly remiss, or you know, when people kind of send out these decrees, these commandments from on high, uh, I kind of see the provisional validity to that, but I don't roll that way. Um, so I would just simply say, check your motivation. Um, and, and simply from that space informed by an increased understanding of the laws of karma, you may want to read quite a, a relatively accessible book by Trollog Rinpoche, came out a couple of years ago, um, it's called Karma. And then that's easy title. And then three subtitles, like what it is, why it matters, blah, blah, blah. But T-R-A-L-E-G, Trollog Rinpoche, I love this guy, Karma. I recommend you read that book. Um, a brief little thing about the addiction thing. Addiction is a, an extremely interesting phenomena. I, I wrote about it in my book, Power and Pain, I wrote several chapters on what I called ground addiction. We're all, my, my friend, we're all addicts um, to greater or lesser degrees, every single one of us. It just it matters what substance we're addicted to and to what extent. I interviewed one of the world's leading authorities on this, Judson Brewer, MD, PhD, another book I recommend called The Craving Mind. He's, a, he's literally one of the world's great authorities. So if you're a member of nightclub, you can listen to that interview. That's a little bit more about the addiction thing. And he's, he talks with you know, scientific rigor about things like dopamine release and all that sort of thing. But we're not, again, we're not on one level, yes. Uh, dopamine is a neurological, or in this case, an endocrinological, it's a, a chemical-based correlate to these types of experiences but they're not positive. So fundamentally, we're not looking for dopamine releases. Dopamine is just the biological signature of the phenomenological experience that we're after, which is this little high. 
you can get that irrespective of any of this kind of thing. You can, you can find moments. In fact, studies, have, I can't remember where, where these came out, but I remember reading years ago, the acts of generosity actually release dopamine. That in the moment of giving, you get this little dopamine release. That's what you want to work with. Find out other ways to, to access that feeling. Um, I can't remember the study, but when I read it, it was like, wow, now how cool is that? In the moment of giving, dopamine is released. That's the kind of addict you want to become, an addict of generosity, right? So the rest of it, my friend, I'm going to let go for now. There's an entire book on this topic uh, of, of uh, vegetarianism. I can't remember the title of it. It's on my bookshelf. Um, written about you know, Buddhism and, and vegetarianism and food. If you Google it, you can probably find it. I just can't bring it to mind right now. Um, but I, you know, inform yourself, educate yourself, and then listen to your own heart and just do what feels right for you. Okay, my friend? Thank nice you. to connect. All the best to you. Thank Adios. You. All right. All right. Um, yeah, next one. Yeah, we can take one more and then I'll get a couple of these written ones. I can go for another 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Okay, perfect. Let's bring in Evelyn. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, um, Andrew. Thank you so much again. Hi again. Um, I just saw you. Yes, you did. Yes. I have signed up and joined. Oh, well, welcome. Welcome aboard. Yeah. Um, my question was about, from a physicist perspective, I'm reading more these days about physicists that are speculating that the, the universe is made not of matter. It is made of energy that is intelligence and matter is the manifestation of that intelligence yep and um so i wondered if can you just in terms of the um language of tibetan buddhism can you close a gap for me between that western physicism physicist idea yeah and, that's a tricky one maybe the gap doesn't need to be closed so let, let me tell you what i mean by that um you know, because physicists, well, first of all, the physics thing, I, I'm really into this stuff as well. Um, bring that question, Andy, you just deleted that question. Can you bring it back up? There you go. Thanks, amigo. Um, yes. Well, you know, Einstein talked about this, right, with the fundamental equivalence of energy being matter, right? E equals mc squared. So you can go all the way back to that that question, that, that equation that just seems like almost, you know, commonplace, the implications behind, behind that um, equation are staggering. Very few people really understand the full implications of it. So, you know, matter and energy are fundamentally interchangeable at, at the physical level. Um, how this relates, how all this stuff relates and even the so-called energy question in relation to Buddhism in the mystical traditions, we have to be extremely careful when we start doing these kind of um, comparisons, because they're not always possible. You know, just because uh, the physicists use the word energy and contemplatives use the word energy, um, they're, they're not referring to the same thing. You know, the, and just because the physicists talk about describing reality and mystics talk about describing reality, it's not the same reality. Um, on one level, what physicists do, just because of the nature of their investigations, their apparatus, their intellectual methodologies, they're working completely within the context of relative truth. They don't even know what absolute truth means. It's not even in their event horizon. 
And so we have to be, we have to be extremely careful. And I have to tell you in the full, full disclosure, I studied physics originally. I, I had this huge kind of breakthrough thing some 40 years ago. I write about it in um, the introduction to my book on dream yoga. And the, the experience was so profound and it was slightly connected to some studies in physics I was doing at the time. I figured, oh my gosh, I need to be a physicist. I need to study this and understand it from a physicist's point of view. So I actually, I came out to see you. I enrolled in physics program. I studied it for three years. I did all the mathematics. And, and at a certain point I realized, and I entered a real crisis um, because I realized I'm barking up the wrong tree here. This is not what I'm after. Um, and so they're not talking about the same thing. They're, you know, at, at its very best, physicists are talking about the highest levels, the most refined levels of relative reality. However, and this is where the stuff gets so interesting. With that said, extremely sensitive scientists like David Bohm um, and even some of the other ones like Schrodinger, I mean, you read some of his work, their physics can really invite a type of mysticism. Um, Ken Wilber wrote a beautiful book on this, an anthology called Quantum Questions. I recommend you read it. Um, but we basically have to be super careful. All the stuff that started with the Tao of physics, you know, Kepler's book and the dancing Wooly masters, all the stuff saying, you know, they're, we're, we're saying this, they're saying the same thing. They're not, they're not. You can fall into all kinds of intellectual philosophical errors, category errors, all kinds of mistakes where you know you think they're using this and we're going to use physics to somehow now prove mysticism well what happens when the physics when the physics changes does that change your mysticism so i i'm with you on this i groove on this kind of stuff i think it's really cool i think perhaps what is you not unifying behind all this element um, for me is the search for truth the search for explanation the search for re reducibility to fundamental tenets that's the important part making these kind of leaps between these types of things while they do have provisional validity as a kind of cultural and a disciplinary anthropology, I wouldn't take it too much farther than that because they're not talking about the same thing. Fundamentally, they're not. Um, but this is a hugely contentious, uh, uh, I wouldn't say divisive, but debated arena that is very much a lot of this for me still remains an open question. And I'm okay with open questions, but I'm also aware of how quickly we want closure, how quickly we want to say, oh, they're isomorphic. They're saying the same thing. I don't think we can do that. Um, and, and until we can have a physicist, a Nobel laureate physicist, who's also a Nobel laureate mystic, we can't say that they're talking about the same thing. So I would just, you know, I'm with you on that, but I would just say you're walking in a, in a, in a field of landmines. Just be careful what you step on. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully it'll just blow up. You step on a landmine. It'll just blow up your conceptual mind. Then you'll get after what you're really after. The question originates out of the experience of putting my horse down. And oh, okay. we were extremely attached. I was his person and he was my horse. And I was probably his only person ever. And he was 28. Yeah. Um, and at the moments after his death, the weather changed, mm. a wind blew up and selectively slammed his stall door shut, leaving all fantastic? the open. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I have experienced this sort of thing. It's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. 
I have experienced exactly that sort of thing. I cannot tell you how many times. I mean, the evening, the evening before my father died, I will never forget this. Uh, I was with him the night he died. In fact, I held him in my arms as he died. I, I'm a runner and, and I was living on the shores of Lake Michigan and I went for a run. And there was just this strangest kind of misty fog. Like I, I, I've lived in that area you know, for decades and I've never experienced anything like it. I'm running and I'm going, something's gonna happen. There, there's, some, there's some weird weather thing here. And my father was deeply connected. He lived on the lake, he loved to swim. And again, this is just one of these first hit things. To me, it was almost like the, the water came up to embrace him. Mm. And he died in this incredible mystical fog. I've never, I mean, I've been there for decades. I've never seen anything like it. And I knew when I went for my run, I said, something's going to happen tonight. And sure enough, he passed. Um, and these kind of things, they're, 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 they're haunting, they're beautiful. And to me, they, again, belie the limitations of the physical point of view because physics can't describe this kind of thing. This is just the magic of, of the environment dancing with the type of experience you're going through. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I, I, I love that kind of story. Um, and yeah, some dralas, whatever, whatever you want to call it, some magic, some drala, some whatever was happening there. Trust the first impression, rest with that, and realize that there was some embrace from the cosmos at that time. So that's great. That's thank really you. Great. You betcha. So one more, uh, one or two more written ones, and then we have something uh, else alive. So Monica, my husband is with COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm here taking care of him and everything at home. I see myself very shaking at the beginning of the day. Fear is what I realized I'm feeling. Although I practice many signs of protection, do you have anything to say? Uh, Monica, if you're there and can help me um, say what? Um, how to work with fear? This is, the question is just a little bit too open-ended for me. Um, and so instead of just throwing noodles against the wall, if you're there and can come on and, and say, what do you mean by do I have anything to say? Uh, um, be a little bit more specific if you're there about what, um, and then I'm happy to address it. Otherwise, I'm guessing a little bit. Um, Virginia, while my main practice is Buddhist, I've also studied shamanism. Good for you. Seem to be a lot of parallels, you bet. There's a lot of focus on healing and ancestors and shamanism. Is there something some similar of focus in Buddhist practice on ancestors and healing? No, not really. Um, not that I'm aware of the kind of filial piety kind of thing. Not ancestors in this shamanistic way. Ancestors more perhaps, and I'm just shooting from the hip here, when you think about things like ancestor principle, um, you know, ancestors being the lineage, um, but ancestors in the way you're referring to them and ancestors in the Buddhist tradition, um, I, nothing immediately comes to mind in the spirit of what you're asking. If there could be something there, I just don't know. It seems that this world is so in need of healing. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but you know what's needed of healing before the world? We, we, we're the ones that are in need of healing. So yes, provisionally, for sure, the world needs healing. But honestly, the world, if you leave it alone, it's already healed. We're the ones that need healing. 
So I would like to know how I can incorporate the practice of healing into my Buddhist practice. Oh, beautiful question. Read the book. Ah, I happen to have it right here. And this is one I didn't write. It's part of the avalanche that I shoveled off before I got to my desk. <laughs> one of these days I'm gonna reach over for a book and I'm not gonna come back. I'm, I'll, I'm, Annie's gonna to have to finish the show because I will be buried. I highly recommend this book. Can you see it? Ecodharma, Buddhist teachings for the ecological crisis. David Loy, my bud, my new bud. We're teaching a course together. I didn't tell you this. We just booked it. Um, do you know the dates, Andy? It's in uh, January. I think the first weekend in January, David and I are teaching a book, a book, teaching a course, a weekend course together on blind spots and obstacles on the spiritual path. I can't wait. But I would highly recommend this book. David is, oh, uh, this guy's just blowing me away. I, I, I am literally, he's on a pedestal for me. I'm honored to work with him and to know him. Um, I think he's the most sensitive Buddhist thinker on the planet right now um, because he casts such a wide net. He, he just, he reaches everywhere. And his book, this book that just came out last year is a little, little minor masterpiece as most of his books are. It's exactly on this topic. Um, and so because it's so beautifully written, um, I, I just, I'm just going to tell you, you know, here I am giving a decree, right? By this book. Okay. Uh, live question. We're getting close to my, yeah, I got six more minutes and then I have to go. Yeah, I can saw, I saw Monica posted in the chat about fear. Oh, so fear, okay, okay. Okay, so let me revisit that question, Monica, with the uh, fear in mind. Um, yeah, so a number of things here, you know, You know, fear is a, a, a huge topic, obviously. Um, completely normal to be afraid of something like this because you know fear is synonymous with, with not knowing. Um, um, in the deepest levels, fear is synonymous with ignorance. But here, fear is synonymous with, with not knowing. You just don't know what's going to happen. So um, I'll just be very practical. Excuse me. I'll be very practical because kind of the theoretical aspects of fear, by the way, I, um, I write, uh, there's an entire chapter in my, this Dreams of Light book about fear. Um, it's worth looking at because it talks about the integral relationship to fear. But very specifically here, this is what I would do, is when you feel that fear, make room for it. Um, don't resist it. It's a natural part of what's happening in your life. Don't somehow think that that's not something you shouldn't be feeling. It's part of the human experience. The, the fear itself fundamentally is not an issue. The relationship to that is the issue. And so the first thing I would recommend is just make room for it. Allow yourself to feel that fear. And in fact, what I recommend is takes a little bit more guts. But what I do when I have these types of experiences is I not indulging the fear. I actually give myself permission to feel that fear as completely as I possibly can. I don't feed it, but I feel it fully. I don't distract myself, no TV, no alcohol, no nothing. I just sit there, I feel it. And I just, I just, I wouldn't say soak in it, but I just allow myself to feel it. That in itself starts to transform it. That kind of meditative crucible 
which is your body. Stay in your body. Notice the tendency to, to kick out. Notice the tendency to spin the what ifs, all the scenarios, the practices to, to recognize that. You know, let that go. Stay down. Stay down. Stay with that energy. That's what it is. It's just energy. And so simply by being with it, you're going to start to transform it. it I'm, not going to I'm, I'm not going to tell you it's going to get rid of your fear. I'm just, what I am going to say is it will change your relationship to it dramatically. And you won't contract away from it. You won't spin away from it. You become, you know, the way through fear, fearlessness is not getting rid of fear. Fearlessness is going into and through your fear and being big enough to hold it. Um, so I would simply start with that. You, you can take it further than that. There's all kinds of things you can do to, to more specifically kind of transmute fear. Um, I might recommend, again, I like to ping out references. Um, start, you know, Pema Chodron has made a career on this kind of thing in a beautiful way. Uh, when things fall apart, reread that book. The places that scare you, read that book. Pema has worked with this stuff very, very skillfully. Um, so my heart goes out to you. You know, when we have any situations where we don't know, listen, you're in a bardo, right? You are in a bardo. The rug of your life has been pulled off from underneath you. And then the question is, how can we, any of us, relate to that type of groundlessness? It's a very powerful, painful way um, that can, you can learn a great deal about yourself. So it, this is, I say this with some reservation, so the whole thing doesn't just become this kind of clinical, spiritual experience. Oh, I'm going to use this for whatever. That's not what I'm saying here. I am saying, however, you can engage slash use the experience as a way to learn a lot about yourself, um, as a way to learn about you know, your inability or or ability to hang out in that groundlessness, what you do when you can't, observe all this, you know, uh, with complete um, equanimity and dispassion. You know, as Kripalu said, the highest form of spiritual practice is self-observation without judgment. So just observe, be curious, be a curious. Notice what you're feeling. No shoulds here. Just be open, open, open. And then don't be afraid to live um, with the light, you know, the lights fully on, the, the pilot, you know, the, the fires of life are really on. And then try to stay there as best you can. Um, and then, you know, again, this is such a huge topic. It's, it's difficult because I don't want to just throw out cute little sound bites when we're talking about something that's, uh, you know, so deep and profound for you. So I hope you understand that in such a limited period of time, it's a little tricky for me to throw out exactly the target that's going to you know, land for you. Um, but those texts, I would just revisit some of those books by Pema. She's written really beautifully on this stuff. Okay. All right. So maybe one more, Andy. How are we doing? Um, do we have another live one? Yeah, we've got two, two in the queue. Let's two in the queue, and then uh, I got to close it up. Okay. Uh, let's bring in Eveline. Hi, Andrew. Um, I hope you don't mind. I don't think I have connection that's good enough to turn my camera on. No, that's okay. All good. Thank you for so much for all your writings. And I'm just astonished and so impressed with your erudition. Um, so as a child, I was um, a very lucid dreamer. I had lucid dreams a lot. 
And back then, usually, you know, something would cue me into the fact that I was dreaming. And then I would say, this doesn't make sense. And I would wake myself up. Cool. Um, and from working with your um, lucid dreaming workbook, um, I've gotten back to semi-frequently being lucid in my dreams. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's been really cool and amazing. Um, but what I'm confused about is that, so as a child, I never checked my body in these dreams. Right. Um, and recently I've checked my body or what I think is my body in these dreams. And then there's nothing. Right. Um, and then that confuses me sometimes to the point where I lose lucidity. And sometimes um, I just spend sort of the rest of the time that I'm lucid trying to manifest something. So okay. for instance, um, just a few days ago, I was like, oh, okay, I'm aware that this is a dream now. I'm going to try to manifest a flower, oh, right? Cool. And, and then I'm like, okay, let me see if I can manifest a flower in my hand. But then when I see that there's no hand um, and that there's no flower, I get confused. Um, <laughs> so for, I just, I guess what is going on. And the other thing is that I find that the more lucid that I am in my dreams, um, the more dreamlike my waking consciousness seems to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, so in your workbook, you talk about how your favorite state check is to jump up and down. Yeah. Um, and I initially started with that, but then when I landed in my dream, I just landed on the floor because right. my, my dreamscape and my sort of waking scape are yeah. so similar. Yeah. Um, and sort of what I've recourse to is just asking myself, you know, is this logical? Is this logical? Um, and I'm wondering is, is there like an easier way to do that? Um, to do a dream, a state check, you mean a, a, an easier way yeah. to say, is this logical? Well, yeah, because it seems like that's more, um, yeah, instead of like, is there sort of something that's easier when, when it seems like the waking world and the dream world become so similar to each other. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that uh, because that's not 100% clear to me, but let me ping on a couple of the other things you said and then uh, let's revisit what you're asking. Um, first of all, absolutely positively in terms of, you know, the more, the more real your dreams become, the less real this becomes. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's beautiful. That the way my nomenclature is the more you reify the dream, the more you de-reify waking reality until eventually you see, no kidding, the ultimate equanimous nature of both. They're no different. They're no different. Um, it's, it's basically fundamentally for the awakened ones, you know, Milarepa sang not his, his uh, song of realization not seeing day and dream as differing, this is as meditation as it can be. So what you're saying is absolutely my experience and it's one of the fruitions of lucid, dream, uh, lucid dreaming dream yoga is the more you make your dream world real, the more you make this world dreamlike. And that's, so that's really great, good for you. Um, because you said quite a bit, just briefly jog my memory about the very first part of your statement. I'm, I'm not taking notes on everything you said. Um, so what was the um, first? I guess the first question, the first part is, I don't know if it's because there's a part of my mind that resists being in a state of no body. That's it. Yeah, um, I remember now. Yes, that's exactly it. Yes, now I remember. 
Yes, that's exactly what it is. There is, there is, in fact, what you're saying, you know, this is why the moniker of dream yoga is the measure of the path. It, it's revelatory. It will reveal to you. And so therefore, this is one of the really cool things about um, lucid dreaming, dream yoga. Even your failures are successes. They're successes in the sense that they're revelatory. They will show you things that you may not have seen before. So your inability to do some of these things in exactly the way you suggest will reveal to you some places where you're stuck. I, I, I mean, this is constant for me. I, I do all these different practices in my dreams. Some of them I can do really easily because I've done them for 40 years. <clears throat> Others I still really wrestle with. I still... And it's a kicker, it's a pisser, it's really quite funny. I'll be in a lucid dream, I know I'm lucid and I'll try to do something and I, I either have a hard time or sometimes I just can't do it. And I actually start chuckling in my dream. It's like, good Lord, you still can't do this. <laughs> and I don't get pissed off at all. It's just like, oh, how interesting is this? It reveals the power of our habits. Mm. So, you know, you work with that then. It's like, oh, wow, I'm still stuck here. I'm still unable to do that there. How interesting is that instead of like beating yourself up? So this is one of the reasons dream yoga is considered slightly advanced is because it's revelatory. It will reveal to you where you are. And some people would rather not see that. And so just the fact that you recognize that in itself is a triumph. That's really cool. That's really good. And then you just with a humor, levity, determination, you just kind of keep going back in. You can supplant, uh, supplement this, support it with all kinds of daytime practices. They mm -hmm. actually will help you do this sort of thing at night, but I won't go there for the purposes of time. Rephrase the very last thing you said at the end. Um, there were a couple of little tracks there that, that um, just weren't all that clear to me as there as well. So what were you saying at the very end? So, so in the book, you talk about sort of installing these dream signs. Right. Yes. So ways for doing state checks. Exactly. So this is pretty indi individual. Um, you know, there are the standard ones like the jumping, mm -hmm. putting your hand, trying to run your finger through it, looking for a shadow. I mean, there, there's dozens of them. Um, and so one of the reasons to learn these many different types is perhaps one of them will speak to you more than another. For me, the jumping one really works. For others, it doesn't do anything. So mm -hmm. here's where you can be your own explorer. You can just say, you know, what, what can I do um, using my own temperaments and my own dream experience that will actually help me clue myself into the fact that I'm dreaming? That's called a dream-initiated lucid dream. A dream sign arises, and whether it's, it's, it's something illogical, um, whatever, um, Something will clue you in, just like you said, hey, I can't do this in real life, I must be dreaming. And so the basic idea is to learn the classic um, spirit behind these dream signs and then cultivate your own. You know, they're classic ones, like I mentioned, there are others as well. Inconsistencies, you know, the, like literally the simple like, hey, I can't do this in real life kind of thing. Um, sensitizing yourself to those recurrent dreams are super helpful along those lines. But eventually you'll find your own little dream signs that will be your go-tos. Um, and then, you know, you're empowered in that way to, to kind of discover those for yourself. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Um, really short question yeah, about the beginning um, meditation that we did. Sure. When you say co-creation by sight, um, is it also or synonymous with co-creation by light in the sense of light, like the inner luminosity light? Oh, that's a very interesting comment. 
Yes, if you're talking about light in that regard, um, that is in fact, it's a very interesting statement actually, that, that co-creation of light, when we start to look um, very deeply into the, not now the phenomenal, but the actual the relational reality, like what is it that's there? That's what's there, that's what's there. And what that is, that's what we're talking about in the book. That's a huge topic, but that's a good, another touche for you, yes. It's a fantastic book. I'm about yeah. halfway through and it's just so amazing. Thank, Thank you, so you for sharing that. Me. Thank you for sharing that. Great questions. Great questions. Andrew. Okay. One last one, Andy. All right. Let's bring in Gwen. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Andrew. Um, as you've been talking about rainbow body over the last couple of weeks, um, I have, I have absorbed this notion through uh, the programs and, and sort of teachers that I've been with that one should not take full rainbow body to be a mark of one's um, spiritual development. And I think why that- not? Being, why, not? Well, why not? Uh, apparently, from what I can tell, uh, Toko Ergen did not totally rainbow body and the 16th Karmapa in the descriptions of his death by, uh, the, uh, that's in the Andrew. Oh, I see uh, what you're saying. I see where you're yeah, going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't totally vanish leaving nails, right? So, uh, but I was wondering, how do you relate to this? Because yeah. I have talked yeah. about I see what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's not like, you know, if you go up um, in a 4th of July way that somehow denotes a higher level of realization. No, 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 no. It doesn't. Um, and and is, if you start looking underneath this, there are all kinds of rainbow bodies, um, you know, well beyond the scope of what we can talk about here. Um, rainbow body of great transference. I mean, there's just, as you know, with the Buddhist thing, we've got, you know, we, the tradition has lists upon lists. But I, I see where your question is now. That just because somebody like Tuku Ujin Rinpoche or Kamapa doesn't go up as a rainbow body, is that somehow, you know, like less the full stamp of approval than someone who goes up? And I, I, I'm setting this up with Andy, by the way, you know, we're getting this whole YouTube thing set up. I, I'm definitely going to go up as there is the highest transfer rainbow <laughs> by the flash of light of which this is, this is Donald Trump version of enlightenment. Right. I'm going to come up, I'm going to go up in such a rainbow body that it's going to smoke my whole house. Right. <laughs> so, so I get what you're saying, my friend that um, it's not, and, what, and this is the point extremely well taken, um, it's not to somehow suggest that uh, His Holiness Karmapa or Kensei Rinpoche or these others, because some of them shrink. I mean, some of them, it's just astounding the varieties of exits, right? Some of them are really pretty spectacular in their own way. Others are pretty inconsequential. <clears throat> They're not necessarily correlative or indicative of these, like, is this one 11th boomy? Is this one 10th boomy? Is this one 9th boomy? No, uh, my understanding is that um, we have to be very careful about those kind of uh, inherent judgments, like is somehow the rainbow body of great transference, is that how some of the most evolved? If somebody says something different about that and they might, I haven't heard it, 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 it wouldn't make any sense to me. There are some technicalities, super esoteric things. Again, just, I have no experience with this whatsoever. It's just what I've read. That sometimes people won't go up in a rainbow body because of Samaya issues with their students. Um, and so it just becomes extremely complicated and, and only for the deep nerdy divers. 
But I think the point is I'm hearing what you're saying here, Glenn, is yes, we have to be very careful that just because you know someone like Kamapa didn't go up in a big flash of light that somehow he wasn't as realized as the other ones, I, I sure as heck would not say that. Um, and that's my understanding of it. If somebody has something more to say about that, I would love to hear it and I would probably contest it because it doesn't make sense to me. Part of what happens, and this is what Francis Tiso talks about, is one of the reasons people go up in rainbow body is they do practices that are conducive to that, in particular, Treksho and Tugal. So if those are your main practices, and if you do them for 60 years, <laughs> well, you can see how you know, elite that kind of thing is, then yes, you're kind of paving the way for rainbow body. Uh, but did Christ do that? Um, who knows? He went up maybe in a rainbow body, who knows? So there are certain specific practices that will result in certain kind of strategies, markers of outer body correlations when they die. Um, does that somehow mean that Togal Treksha was somehow more superior to Mahamudra that the Karmapa practiced? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's just the body participates in enlightenment in different ways. And so we have to be careful of these reifying tendencies we have, right? And we start to reify this in itself and saying, oh, you know, if you don't go out this way, you know, my guru went out with, with a big flash of light. Yours just shrank to the size of a, of a doll. I, I would, this would be great. This would be such a great SNL skit, right? My teacher went up in rainbow smoke. Your guru just ended up being this big. I mean, your guru is not as dramatic as my guru, right? <laughs> oh my God. We could totally do an SNL thing on this. And maybe that's the best way to leave this with a big smile and a joke because on one level it's spectacular, but I would probably let it go with that. Okay, my friend. <laughs> Bye everybody. Great to see you. And if you can leave the chat up for just a second, that'd be great. See you next week. Ciao. <laughs>